You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. If you'd turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. I only have six verses for you this morning. Uh, it's very... Uh, interesting passage, it's, it's a different feel than the way we've been going through. If you've been joining us over the last several months, I don't even know how many months now. I guess since Advent, Christmas, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. We find ourselves today in the very last chapter, okay? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah so finally, we've made it, okay? Well, we're in the last chapter of Hebrews, and today we're gonna be starting off in the last six verses. Really just three messages more, three more, and then we'll be finished with Hebrews. Uh, but today it's a very different feel. You'll notice in the passage it's very um, pastoral. He's preaching very clear, short words to a people that he knows and loves. He's gone on through a theological exploration of who Jesus is and the way of the Christian life of following Jesus by running the race, looking to him, enduring trials and suffering and hardship. Keep on keeping on, he's been saying. And he's given us probably one of the most magnificent looks at the person of Jesus Christ and how he is better than everything and anyone you could ever imagine, okay? So he's created over 12 chapters, this extensive work, this theological work. Many would liken it to the entire book of Romans and and the book of Hebrews are so interconnected. But then in the last chapter, it's like closing words. It's like um, his final thoughts. And then he's just gets out of the theological size and he starts speaking directly to people that he knows and where they're at. And he just tells them, hey, you believe these things? You better start living like it, okay? It becomes very practical. It's like, do you believe in Jesus? Are you following him? Are you enduring? Your life better start changing and looking different and have a, 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 this pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of godliness that ought to reflect Right, that ought to be reflected in your life. And so he's, he gives them just plain things. So today's message is love, marriage, and money. See, I told you I'd be preaching on marriage, okay? All right, it's coming. And, uh, and by the way, if uh, you are wearing a pic- uh, shirt like this, please come to the front for a picture after the service, okay? Uh, so we're going to take a group picture. That I was told to say that, okay? So you can all laugh at us and point fingers and stuff, okay? Oh boy, all right. Now we move into the scripture here. Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life, verse five, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can then confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We praise you for all that has been lifted up before you today. Children, members, mothers, God singing your praises. 
Thank you for the church and the living organism that it is. May you teach us from your word today. Praise you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, this aspect of this aspect now of of now the real nitty-gritty, the practical, as you can tell, this aspect of brotherly love, the aspect of marriage, the aspect of money. So I know nothing will apply to any of you today, right? 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 Everyone's like, oh, wow, there's nothing here for me, you know? Okay, this is getting super practical in some of these things, and I don't want to make it more complicated than it is. He speaks very straightforward today. I'm going to try to do that. I'm not the best at that. I'm a pastor. I have trouble with that. I'm going to try to speak straightforward to you today. I'm going to try to not overcomplicate it. Some of these concepts are not complicated, but they might be difficult to apply. They might be difficult to live out, as is the case for holiness. We're following Jesus. We're living a, a life pursuing him, and yet what does that look like? How does that work itself out in my life? It can be challenging. If we're honest, sometimes it can be difficult. But as we learned from last week, we were on Mount Sinai, We were in this place of God is a holy God who is separate from us. We find ourselves at Mount Sinai with a fearful, um, holy God. And then we come, as the passage led us to in end of chapter 12, to come to Mount Zion where we find a door, we find an entrance, we find a way to enter this celebration of festal gathering of angels in the church living and praising God, very much like a service today, praising God and singing him. And you too are welcome into that place because of the blood of Jesus that is sprinkled on your behalf. It's a beautiful passage that the blood of Abel spoke a word, but the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. We find ourselves now coming to Jesus, coming to him, and as we come to him, our lives reflect what it is we're going towards. It should reflect the person we're following as we imitate his holiness, as we imitate his life through the power of the Holy Spirit walking in us each and every day. So the first point is really just this concept of love. It covers the first couple of verses, loving your family, loving with hospitality, loving with empathy. You'll see that in verse one, very simple. Let brotherly love continue. He's speaking to a people that he knows and he knows they've been through a hard time. We've already talked, they've been through suffering and persecution. They've had their own homes robbed and their possessions taken. And so they've experienced difficulty, but he says, hey, that love that I know exists among you, as I would say as your pastor as well, the love that I know exists among you right now and that we have felt this morning, let that continue. Persevere in that, continue. Don't stop loving one another, but I think this is a great place to start. It starts with loving your family first. What is the greatest commandment? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? This idea of loving our neighbor, but loving the people that we celebrated here and that are united to us as a group. Love your family first. And yet if we're honest, those are sometimes the hardest people to love, right? The people you know the most. The people that know you the most often be the ones that are the most difficult to love because we're having to love at a level that is deeper than the ones that we do not know and see us maybe as our work self at work. They don't know us the way we're at home. They don't know when that struggle that you've been through, that hardship you've experienced, how is it that we can love each other like a brother in Christ, like a sister in Christ? How is it that the church of God can love each other like a family? These children we saw, I I don't know. I didn't plan all this the way it all kind of worked together, the children and the new members and the family of God coming together, youngest to oldest. It's how can the family love each other? So let that love continue. The word brotherly love there is the phileos or the uh, Philadelphia. 
uh, brotherly love Philadelphia. That's, it's the word, right? It's the Greek word. It, that's what he's saying. It's not the agape and the other, but the actual relational person-to-person brother-sister kind of love. That love, let that be present, let that continue. Then he gets a little deeper and he says, take that love not for just one another, but, but also the people you don't know so well. Verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Loving with hospitality is this point. I think right off the bat, uh, some people are like, whoa, what's the angel thing going on here, right? It's so kind of an interesting verse and in fact, I got distracted by that passage looking into that more than I did what exactly he was telling me. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Be hospitable. Be willing to entertain. In the ancient Near East during that time, there was an Airbnb, VRBO, uh, inns and um, hotels on every corner. Their homes and their houses were the places that people would travel to and need a place to stay. The highways and the Roman road system all, it was these places. A person's home was the hotel. The persons that they would go to, that it, they were expected to stay with people they knew and sometimes they didn't know. And so it was vital that a church was a place that was welcoming to the stranger. We could say in today's world, welcoming to the refugee, welcoming to those people that we don't know so well. But are we opening our homes and our lives to those people that we don't know, but we're called to love and we're called to be hospitable to? Well, they don't look like me. They don't have my same background. They're different than me. That's the whole point. God is saying to love those who are like you and those who are not like you, to open your homes and your lives to these people because he gives this very interesting application because frankly, you don't know who it is that you're loving. You don't always know who will come upon your doorstep. And he gives this really curious illustration because they might even be an angel in your midst and you have no idea. You're like, that's a strange thing to say, and it is. It's very unique. Not, this passage is mentioned, and angels is mentioned several times in Hebrews, the beginning in particular. But this, if you recall, is a reference, is a, is a shout out all the way back to Genesis. The book of Genesis in chapter 18 and 19, we get uh, very specific instances of angels visiting people. And the idea here is that uh, Abraham and Sarah were visited by angels that came to them, that told them they were going to have a child. And so these angels came, and whether some say, is it a theophany, is it a pre-incarnate Christ, we won't get into that today. But it's the aspect that they welcomed these visitors in. Abraham said, go, celebrate, let us have a feast, let us feed these people, let us bring them in out of the sun, and let us entertain them, let us be hospitable to them. He welcomed them in, and he was blessed because of it. Lot, in a very different way, in chapter 20, welcomes two angels that are there, not for a good reason, but a very bad one to warn him and tell him to get out. And for as much as Lot failed in this, Lot actually offered up his own daughters, but in some ways he he offered to bring in these people who were seeking to seek shelter, and he brought them in. And so this story, you can go back and read that on your own, is a reference to this. And so I don't necessarily look at this verse as a way to, to think about, is every person I run into an angel or not? I don't know if that's the first thing that should pop into your mind all the time. I think the concept is a sense of we ought to be loving others because we don't know who is in our midst. And it is, are you an angel, are you not? You know, I know some of you, I don't think there's much of a doubt that you're not. I, some of you, I've, I've been thinking that, you know, like, you know, maybe. And then you're like, no, no, definitely not, right? Yeah, I'm joking, I'm joking, okay? So it's this idea of, of re- welcoming those who we find coming to us. And are we a hospitable people? Are we a hospitable and welcoming church, maybe? And then he says, love with empathy. Verse 13, verse three, 
And this is where he gets even deeper and maybe even more personal. And he says in verse three, remember those who are in prison as though who in prison, as though, as though you're with them. I mean, don't just like think about it like those people are having a hard time, but imagine you were put in their shoes. Put yourself in their shoes. What would it be like to be in prison? And many of these people possibly, and not possibly, we know from the passages and the time period and the history and the archeology, span but we know specifically from the very book of Hebrews that these people have been wrongly mistreated and wrongly imprisoned for their faith. They were imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ because they were Christians. And so we know that he's speaking to a people who might have family members who find themselves in prison because they were of the persecuted subset of that people and of that time. And so they're saying, look, remember those people, don't forget those people just because they're not among you right now. Those people who are mistreated, you are connected to them. You, you are one with them. Do you, do you see the sense where he says here in this passage, he says those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body, you're also in the body. We've been reflecting on that this morning, that we are one body together. You are together connected with them by the spirit. So when one mourns, we all mourn. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. We find ourselves connected with the highs and lows of every single person that calls them as a part of the, the, uh, the body of Christ. We celebrate together and we remember the prisoner and the mistreated. Those all around the world, even as part of our body that we don't know, who are being mistreated and persecuted. The martyrs of the faith that have gone before that built the church. Those now who are being persecuted their faith in places all over the world. Maybe places like Ukraine that we see on the news all the time, but other not so proliferated wars that are happening in Africa and the Middle East and all over the world. We know that there are Christians who are being murdered and persecuted and are imprisoned even now wrongfully for their faith. So we pray for them, we lift them up. And this is the things that we are called to do. But I want us to press into this moment before I move on to marriage and money towards the end here. That I, I want us to think regarding this idea. I, I posted on this online a few days ago, thinking about this as I was prepping this. The passage is very direct, and I know as a pastor I feel this pressure a lot of times for it says to love everyone, to be hospitable, to remember the mistreated, remember the prisoners, take care of these people, and it can sometimes feel a little pressured as if I feel almost overwhelmed. We spoke about Roe v. Wade today and how we're to care for these kinds of things. And, and sometimes I feel as if it, it, it can almost build up inside of us as Christians that there almost seems to be so many things we need to be doing that we're not doing. And we can have a pressure and a feeling upon our shoulders that we've got to do everything. Do you ever get that sense? And you feel almost, maybe I'm just speaking from my own heart. I often feel in my own heart that sometimes it feels as if there's not enough time in the day. I feel this compassion burnout, this sense of I wish I could be taking care of the orphans in, in, in this country, helping the homeless in our own state, working with pregnancy resource centers. I need to be counseling more. I need to be helping. I need to be studying. I need to be reading. I need to be loving. I need to be organizing. There's something I could be doing at all times. So how is it that we build inside of us a sense of Balancing the duty that we have to live as a people of light in a community of darkness, and yet a people who are safe and, and, and secure in Christ. The duty and the guilt and the shame that can come upon these things when we feel as if maybe we're not doing enough and we just need to do more. 
And some of you who are holding children right now, you have multiple kids at home, you're like, I don't have another minute at home to spare. How can I sign up for this class and attend this event and go to this group? It sometimes feels as if there are endless legitimate ministries that echo God's heart. And at times it can feel somewhat self-defeating. So let me read some of the things that I had read this week from a book, uh, Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human. It's been helpful to me. As often I feel as if there's endless ministry, ministry missed opportunities that I come upon. And he says this, there are uh, a cascade of appeals of endless legitimate ministries that echo God's heart, good things. And yet in the church and within my own life, I often feel there's two kinds of responses I tend to have. Number one, signing up for everything that is presented to them. And as a consequence, they're racing down the road toward burnout. On the other hand, go to the other extreme. They shut their ears to the requests, sometimes uh, claiming the church is trying to do too much. And compassion fatigue has set in, and they don't end up helping anybody but themselves. And surely, there are more than these two options. There's got to be more options than do nothing or do everything. And so discover a third way. I think we need to recall what we are by God's good design. We are finite creatures who must depend on him and depend on one another and answer the calling that he places on our lives. He says this, the whole church is called the body of Christ. We're not an isolated people, but a united organism. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I read this earlier, Romans 12. The one body of Christ consists of the whole church and that body is composed of great diversity and difference, each member being dependent not only on Christ but also on the others within this union. This understanding of the church is easily lost in our individualistic culture. So those believers who pay attention to the divine commands are easily crushed when they try to fulfill all the biblical expectations by themselves. However, when we recognize the Spirit's life-giving power in the church as a community, as a united body, we're liberated to act more faithfully and effectively and to live out what one writer says is the beautiful community. Are we doing everything or are we doing nothing? How many orphans did you help today, I could say? How many refugees did you help today? How many people did you counsel? How many meals did you give to the poor and the homeless? How many people did you share the gospel with today? How, many, how much money did you give to Ukraine or this situation or this hardship? The list goes on and on. Are you gonna do everything or nothing? Or maybe I think it's more helpful and more healthy to think of ourselves as a body of Jesus Christ, where we could think of it this way. Today, I, as the body of Christ, am caring for prisoners in jail. Right here in Hebrews, remember those in prison. I am evangelizing the disenfranchised in Nepal. I am praying over the sick child in the hospital. I'm serving and recovering victims of sex trafficking. I am standing against injustices. I'm caring for widows and I am doing so much more. How am I doing this? Because I am doing all of this because I'm part of the living body of Jesus Christ. God's spirit has united me to Christ and because of that union and to my sisters and brothers in faith, we are one. I am part of the church, both local and global. Obviously, I can't personally do all these things in a single day nor in a single lifetime. However, my church actively pours itself out in love to our neighborhood, to the larger city, and the farther we extend ourselves out into the world. I am not the Messiah, (laughs) and neither are you. 
And he writes, and neither is your pastor, right? I'm not. But together, resting in the finished work of Christ and empowered by the Spirit, together, we can carry out the Father's compassion and love by participating in his holy work. We do this as the body of Christ. We are sheep, and because the shepherd loves us, we together follow and imitate him with our lives. And the idea here just reminds us. It's not that you are to say, well, too busy so I'm not gonna do anything or not gonna respond to any of these commands that are found in the scripture. No, quite the opposite. We're to examine our lives. We're to feel that each one of these commands is speaking to us. But yet answer the call that the Holy Spirit presses on your life. What is he calling you to do today? Is he calling you to reach out in this way or to do this thing? But also don't go home feeling a guilt that you're not doing enough and you just gotta do more. That leads us to a a, a performance-based Christianity. The more I do, the better I am. And so be careful of that as well that maybe there is a moment or a season in your life where you're called to slow down. You're called to take time. You're maybe called to take and look into the people around your life most closest to you that you've been neglecting because you've been doing too much. So I think this speaks into different types of life. And then it moves from this idea of loving and doing in this sense and then to recognizing the institutions that are surrounding us that are supporting our very lives. And that is the one of marriage. He moves into this passage on marriage in verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Not sure there are too many passages in all of scripture that are more countercultural than this one. There are several. (laughs) I I think even there could be a day, and I pray there won't, but there could be a day when reading a passage like this and standing for some of the ideas that we stand for here in the Christian faith where I would not be allowed to say this in public and be the imprisoned that was just spoken about. For us to elevate and honor marriage the way God has designed it is extremely countercultural. And these passages speak into these things and it is something that we need to be as the people of Christ, be a people who honor marriage. To be a people who lift up marriage as an example to the world around. That this is what a Christ-like marriage is to look like. Your marriage is a testimony for God's love for the world and the church. Ephesians 5 gives us the illustration of the church and Jesus and the love between the two is an expressed example and testimony of your love that you have for your spouse. How is that love exemplifying to others that the love that Jesus has shown for you, the love that you have for each other, this is this concept here and so what we find around is so often the mockery that comes about in marriage or the low aspect of treating it and I'm not trying to be insensitive to those who have been through difficult marriages and have been through things and aspects that is not what I'm saying today. I understand there are situations that are hard and difficult and difficult decisions have to be made but I'm speaking to us and these people here who need to consider for a moment that the word is speaking to you to let your marriage Honor it, hold it high. Let people see the love that you have for one another and don't be ashamed of that. It's a thing in which we honor and we use as a, a witness, a gospel witness into the world. And I know there's those who are single in this way and find themselves not in a marriage. And is this not for me or whatever? Marriage doesn't solve all your problems, right? <laughs> if anything, it's gonna create more of them. Or if anything, it's gonna expose the problems you already had in a much greater way, right? 
And so it's this aspect that's so important for us to consider, God's design in marriage. For he then gives a warning, as Hebrews often does. For those, what he says, for honor marriage, let marriage, let it be pure and sacred, let it be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. He's saying if you pursue marriage apart from God's design, there is judgment waiting at the end of that path. He's not saying that if you have committed something, if something's gone wrong, if you've sinned against this word, there's no hope for you. So often we read the Bible in that context and that's not exactly what he's saying. For rather the Bible is full of what? Grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And if that was true of us, where would be the hope for any of our marriages? Where would be the hope for anyone who's struggled in their past and now seeks to find the way of Jesus in their marriage? That's not what he's saying, that there was a time or there was a place, there was a struggle. But no, if you are done, uh, it is as if he presents two roads in front of you, which is what he's been doing this whole time, running the race. As if you are pursuing a God-honoring marriage, if you're pursuing to seek counsel and work together and restore what might have been temporarily broken, if you're seeking to restore that, you can praise God for God is working in your life. But be warned, those of you who are pursuing in a completely opposite direction, the end of that road is destruction. It is not what leads to the way of Christ. You can be sure of that. And so he gives a very clear, very straightforward example of that. Well, you can find this in Ephesians 5, a passage I often read with my premarital counsel couples that I do, in different weddings and different times and counseling that I happen to have. Ephesians 5 is the seminal passage on marriage. In Ephesians 5, it's usually read the second part. Here's a wife's role and a husband's role. You know, the husband loved the wife, the wife. And then, but I often forget the beginning part of that. Ephesians 5, we don't have time to read it today, but it gets in deep to the aspects of of those who perversely distort the sexual intimacy and the marital covenant. What is the end thereof? The beginning of Ephesians 5 begins with imitate God. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This idea of imitate God's love by showing love to one another. But those of you who are seeking to distort what love really is, seeking to distort what marriage really comes to find itself, may it be, there is a pathway of destruction that leads that that way. And so it is a warning in Ephesians 5, both in the beginning, to be careful of the sexual immorality and the perverseness and the pursuit of that. And, And then there is this example, this picture of this is what holy marriage is to look like. And I feel just as convicted as many of you as do is that is my marriage look like that ideal that Paul lays out in Ephesians 5? It is challenging, it is difficult. How is it that I as a husband can truly lay down my life for my wife as the passage says, just like Jesus laid down his life for the church? That is a high calling. Am I willing to take up my cross and die for my wife like Jesus took up his cross and died for the church? Am I willing to do that? That is. And so it, it gives this example, the ideal, the pursuit, what we're, whole, what we're per- pursuing and running after. This is the concept. And so I think the beautiful aspect of this all is let me read a passage in um, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 verse nine is a powerful passage that speaks into a lot of this and I think it gives hope. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, you'll speak where the church even was having a trouble, uh, that the Corinthians church was having an extreme battle with sexual perverseness and sexual immorality, very much so like we see in our culture today. It wasn't new then, it's not new now. But this 1 Corinthians 6, he's speaking to these things. And he's speaking to a people who had experienced all sorts of things, all so much difficulty. And he says uh, in verse 9 and, and 10 and, and 11 here, 
Do, do you do not be deceived, he says, neither sexually immoral, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. It's in a sense that those who pursue that route apart from Christ won't find themselves. But what does he say in verse 11? And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then he says, flee sexual immorality. That is not who you are, he's saying. You were, now you are. Run to Christ. Flee sexual immorality. Honor your marriage. This is what he's saying. And then he goes into a very topic that I'm sure doesn't apply to any of us, which is money, <laughs> right? And everyone's like, okay, how, how quick can we get through this one, right? This last one, he speaks direct. This is maybe the most direct of them all. He gets into verse five here. Uh, verse five, Hebrews 13. As just, it's clear, again, I don't like to complicate. Keep your life free from money. Keep your li- the love of money. I know, I was unclear there. Keep your life free from the love of money. <laughs> and then what does he say? Just really clear. Be content. Love that. Be content. What's the secret of a happy life? We were joking earlier, right? A happy wife is a happy life. Amen, right? Well, I, in some ways, <laughs> in some ways, if they tell you to wear a shirt, you, you wear the shirt, right? Okay? I know we have maybe arguments about that later on for those of you who didn't or some of those of you do. But this idea of the, that is maybe one aspect, one principle, one aspect of wisdom. But what does Philippians 4 tell us is the secret to life? Philippians 4 tells us is that it's not more money equals more happiness. We like to think that. Every commercial I see on TV tells me that, right? More of this equals more happiness. Philippians 4 tells us, no, the secret to life. He says, I've found the secret. You know what he says? It's contentment. I've, I've found the secret, he says, of, of, of having a lot and, and having plenty. I've found the secret of, of those who do not have much and having little. The secret is to be content with what you have. This is the secret of pursuing Christ and giving up everything. No matter what happens in my life, I can praise the Lord because I'm content with what he has given me. Money will not bring you happiness. (laughs) The pursuit of it will leave you more bitter and angry than you have ever found yourself prior. Studies out there show that level of income does not gauge with the level of happiness and joy. They've tried to measure these things. I heard uh, a podcast talking about this uh, and they were speaking about what level of income does the happiness start to level out or is it the more income and the higher it rises, happiness and joy goes along with it. And they found the measurement started to level out around 65,000, 70,000 of your income and beyond that, The happiness does not increase and it gets to a certain point where the happiness and joy measured on these stats and and these information sends to plummet. It's an extraordinary thought. As we would think, the more you have, the more you get, right? And the more happiness you enjoy, the life and the fleeing pleasures of life get to be poured out on us. But notice, as I've said, even in speaking to this, I often feel awkward speaking about money, I don't know, but it is one of the topics that I'm like, oh, it's always hard. 
The aspect here is that, as I said and messed up my words earlier, it's not money that is the problem, right? It's not how much you have or how little you have, it's the love of it. I know a lot of people who have a lot of money, yet they don't love it. I see that they hold their hand with their money loosely. What comes in also goes out. They're helping people behind the scenes and they don't look for it themselves. And yet I see a lot of people who don't have a lot of money and yet they clutch every penny. They'll never help, they'll never let it go and they live a life full of bitterness because they don't have enough and those who have enough live a life of bitterness because they can't keep it all. So how is it that we can live a life enjoying what God has done for us, working hard and working faithful in our lives, whatever calling that might be and allowing God to give the increase? This aspect of Matthew 6 and Luke 11 tie into this idea of the Old Testament as well. We're, we're in the saying, this passage from the Old Testament in Proverbs 30, give me neither poverty nor riches. One, one writer says this, the sage asks the Lord for enough to meet his daily needs. His prayer sounds very much like the Lord's prayer when Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread. Help me to be content with what I have and what I need. And yet the interesting part about the body of Christ is the way often your needs are met are when God has given much to some who need to meet your needs with what they have. Their abundance becomes yours. And so it's a recognition for those of you who have been given a lot, which is literally almost all of us, for we live in America, You look at the, ex, the, the information of people all around the world, how people in Africa can live on a few dollars a day. And we have how many dollars going out to how many different streaming services in our regular monthly bill, right? And so it is one of those things that we need to look at our finances, look at our lives. Most importantly, look at our hearts. Where is your treasure? Jesus speaks of a man who saw a field, and in that field he found a treasure what was called a priceless treasure. And he went and sold everything he had to purchase that field because what was buried in that field was the priceless treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have him, you have all you need. And this picture goes on to tell us that we need to be careful of money and the love of it J.C. Ryle, one of a, a writer that I've been enjoying, he, he writes in 1878, meaning to say, this isn't a problem for us modern, secular, Americanized people. <laughs> this is a p- problem back then. J.C. Ryle says, I believe further that the passage is meant to teach that riches do bring a special danger with them, so be careful. It brings th- the danger of the possession of them that has a very hardening effect on our soul. They can chill, they can freeze, they can petrify the inward man. They close the eyes to the things of faith and they insensibly produce a tendency to forget God. I've seen that so many times. Once I have enough or once you see other people living in a place where they have enough, there is a tendency that they don't need God for anything because money will buy them anything they want, except the one thing they need, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. Money can't buy it. And if anything, the scripture tells us to beware of having money, to beware of the temptation that is there. The spirit of God can work in your life and allow you to steward it and use it well. I've seen that happen and I'm still seeing it regularly here on a weekly basis at this church. But beware, for Achan brought defeat on himself and the armies of Israel and death on himself and his family. For money, Balaam sinned against the light, 
tried to curse God's people for money. Delilah betrayed Samson to the Philistines for money. Gehazi lied to Naaman and Elisha and became a leper for money. Ananias and Sapphira became the first hypocrites of the early church and lost their lives and for money. Judas Iscariot sold Christ and was ruined eternally. J.C. Ryle writes that. And to be careful. And so let us live with faith. And I think I wanna close with these two verses here. Look at these last two verses. Verse uh, five and six. He says, to be content with what you have. Why? I mean, I could do that as a pastor. All right, guys, be content. Don't love money. All right. What does he say? Be content. Why? Why? That's a great question to ask when you read the Bible. Why? Why? Because I'll never leave you or forsake you. God's not going to leave you. You know what I can guarantee he will leave you? Your money. <laughs> I can guarantee that. There will come a day in your life. All your money will be gone. But God will not. God won't. God never leaves you or forsake you. Stop worrying about what you have or what you don't have and worry about what the very one who lives within you and empowers you to live each day. Believe in him. God will never leave you or forsake you. And then he says, so we can confidently say, and I think as a church we can confidently say it, the Lord is my helper. I don't fear what man can do to me. Now, if we're honest, we have fears about money. Can I pay those bills? I have that same feeling when the bills come through, when the wonderful New Hampshire tax bill for the house you own comes through. We love those times, right? When those times of bills come through, there is fear that goes through my own heart. Will I make it? We remind ourselves not money will solve those problems. No, the one who I trust in, the one who is powerful and greater than all of those things, he is the one I give my trust in. He will never leave me or forsake me and he is my helper. I will not fear. I will not fear. Pursue God. Pursue his holiness. Pursue his design. Money is never the goal. It isn't our God. We don't worship it. It might be a tool that God uses for you to accomplish his purposes and he does on a regular basis. And yes, we have fears, but let us have faith in God's promises to live by, by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and we say, I, he will never leave me or forsake me. He will help me. What can man do to me? He's gonna take care of the lilies. He's gonna take care of the sparrows. You better believe he's gonna take care of you. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for the plain nature of your scripture. The reminders that we need to hear, every single one of us, Lord, help us to look inwardly and to consider what you have said today from your word. Lord, thank you for even the, the power of what we have sung already this morning, praising you for the victory that you have given us, the power that you have over the dead and over the cross, the resurrection that we long for it and hope for, yet there's times where we find ourselves in a wilderness or in a desert where things seem dry and we need you, Lord, more than ever. God, help us to recognize our faith and our trust is in you. Let us worship you first above all things. Lord, help us to learn to honor and love our wives. Lord, thank you for our mothers today. May you bless them. May you take care of them and honor them. And let us worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.